This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, before we get into today's subject matter, I did want to read off a review to you guys. So I know at the end of the episode, hopefully you guys listen all the way to the end. We always encourage you guys, if you like the content, to go ahead and leave us a five-star review if we feel, or if you feel like we've earned that. And then also leave us a sentence or two or three just to kind of let us know, hey, what is it about the content that you're liking? Because again, this isn't your normal men's ministry content right? This isn't your normal women's ministry with a male twist, which is essentially what all men's ministries tend to be like. It is different. You know, we go into subject matters that are a little bit more controversial. Uh, Some of the things that we say and how we say it might, you know, come off as being a little bit something that that you're not used to at the very least. But as I was going through some of the uh, reviews on iTunes here recently, I came across one that was uh, someone reviewed us last summer and uh, the person, they put their name down as Bacon with like 12 A's. Uh, so hilarious. Uh, but I, I didn't realize that this was on there, this review. I was just kind of clicking through our, our channel and I wanted to read this review to you because this guy, and again, I don't know his name. So whoever is bacon with like 12 A's, uh, hopefully if you're listening to this, please reach out to us, hit us up at info at undaunted.life on email info at undaunted.life. We'd love to connect with you, but I just wanted to read to you what the podcast and what our content has done for this one guy in particular, because again, we, we want to encourage you guys. If you like this content, this is how the content gets out to more people. The algorithms don't like people that don't get five-star reviews and don't get a lot of reviews. So that's something that we want to make sure we keep popping up in people's feeds. So let me go ahead and read this review to you. And it's from June 30th of 2018. I'm not one who typically takes the time to comment or write reviews, but I believe this podcast deserves input. Listening to this podcast has simultaneously helped to open my mind while at the same time centralizing my focus as a Christian man. <clears throat> Excuse me. How Undaunted Life has opened my mind. It has brought to the forefront of my conscious topics such as abortion, a lack of leadership in the church, and the historicity of Jesus, to say only a few. These are topics that I, admittedly, should have been thinking about a lot more. This podcast has also opened my mind to a myriad of books and other podcasts which have also helped me to open my mind in other ways. How Undaunted Life has helped to centralize my focus. It has solidified the idea that a Christian man has three main focuses in his life, his spiritual resilience, his mental resilience, and his physical resilience. By dividing my focus into these three categories, it has helped me to see my personal weaknesses in those areas, which has helped me to work on those same weaknesses. Since listening to this podcast and since applying what I have learned, both from the podcast as well as the other sources I've been exposed to as a result of this podcast, I've seen personal growth in all three areas. My wife has seen it too, particularly in the area of leadership, and it has benefited our marriage. While there are a few certain ideas on this podcast, which I don't agree with, that's okay. Having an open mind and having the willingness to listen to someone's opposing opinion is part of what Kyle speaks about in this podcast. It falls under the category of mental resilience and is a lesson in itself. I highly recommend all Christian men both listen to this podcast and read the devotional on version. You will find yourself challenged in a beneficial way. So again, guys, as you can kind of tell there, even in that last paragraph, you know, he doesn't always agree with everything that we talk about. And and that's the thing that people don't understand is I actually love that. I love when people don't just automatically agree with the things that we say or, or how I say things and how I go about what I, what I'm doing. Again, I encourage you guys all the times. If you disagree with me on something and it's just your opinion, that's fine. I'm okay to talk to you about your opinion. As long as you understand that there's no right or wrong because it's an opinion. Blue is not definably and in inextricably the greatest color ever, right? You can argue that there are other colors that are better, but when something is truth or false, whenever something can be determined as true or false, those are things where we don't get to express our opinion on. And so I love that this guy obviously alluded to the fact that he doesn't agree with everything and he just put it out there and he says, Hey, but overall, this is something that I really enjoy. So I wanted to put that out there to you guys here just real quick. Again, it means the world to us when you leave us reviews, especially if it's a five-star review. So guys, I mean, obviously, if you if you think we're a three or four-star, maybe just save your review. <laughs> go, go put that review on someone else's podcast. But if you think we deserve a five-star review, please leave us one. But let's go ahead and get into today's content. So the episode that we're going to go through today is called Blue Belt. And that is because yours truly... Kyle Thompson has finally attained his blue belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So I spent uh, about a year and seven or eight months training at the Forge in Edmond, Oklahoma, and just doing the normal things, going to practice, uh, helping people with competitions, doing competitions of my own. And I did get my blue belt a couple of Thursdays ago uh, from the recording of this podcast. And so I wanted to kind of describe to you guys what that experience was like 
But also, for those of you guys who are maybe thinking about skipping this episode because you're not a jiu-jitsu guy and you just don't know anything about it, there's a lot of content here that even if you've never done jiu-jitsu before, you're going to get some value out of some of the things because um, the lessons that I've learned since the last time I talked about this, which was episode five of this podcast, I've learned uh, a lot since then because this is kind of a pseudo part two to episode five of this. So if you would go back and listen to that one, maybe before you listen to this one, there's been some additional lessons, life lessons, man lessons that I've learned using jujitsu since that time. So definitely stick around. I think it'll be valuable for you, but let's go ahead and get into the story of our blue belt promotion. So every gym apparently does this differently. And, and I'm certainly not putting myself as an authority in this area because, you know, I basically have experienced experience one gym for the most part. And, uh, so if your gym's different or if I'm saying something wrong, you know, know, it is what it is. Give me some grace. But the thing about our gym is at our gym, we basically do a night where we do all of the promotions at one time. So if you're being promoted to a new belt, which just to give you a reminder, it starts out at white belt and then goes to blue, purple, brown, and black everyone is getting promoted on the same night. So some gyms, you know, they'll, they'll focus everything on one person, uh, or they'll have a a little small group of people one week and a small group of people the next. Our, our gym tends to do it all at once. So the last time we did this was about six months ago. We did another large group of people and a lot of people got promoted. We basically had brown, purple, and black or, and, uh, blue belts that had been promoted that night. And so basically it's a night where a lot of the guys come out of the woodwork. So there's some guys that maybe don't come that consistently, maybe because of work or their family or something like that. But this is a night where they definitely show up, but also friends and family show up. If, if you feel like your person, uh, if you feel like you're going to get promoted, you, you kind of want your people to be there. You want your, maybe your spouse to be there or something like that. Because when you walk in that night, you don't know for certain that you're being promoted, right? Some people might have a pretty good idea based on their track record and how much they've been training and how long since the last promotion, you might have an idea, but you don't really know. But if you are getting promoted, you don't want, you know, nobody to be there for you or something like that. So basically what we did at our gym is we did a little bit of a flow roll. So everybody kind of got out there and the mat was just absolutely completely packed. And then what we did is uh, the guy who kind of runs our gym, Chris, he, he split guys up into groups. And then basically your group would come out and then they had all the killers on one side of the gym. So those were our, you know, our brown belts, our purple belts. Um, and, you know, one of our black belts was out there. And basically you're there and then someone just walks out and it's your turn to go against them. And so for about three or four minutes, you're going with an incredibly skilled person who is fresh. And then they say time and immediately another person comes in. So you don't get a break, a break, you don't get a rest, but those people get to rotate out and they bring a new person right in and it's basically go time. And so I can't really remember cause I was, I was so in the, in the zone for this night that it, it just really, I really have no idea how long it lasted. I know at different points we took like little five minute breaks and then we came back in and did it some more and, th- and that type of a thing. But it was one of those things where that night is about survival really. I mean, because you're not sitting there going through every last bit of the curriculum and doing everything exactly precisely. This is about making it through. It's about being a good training partner, but it's also about survival because these people typically on promotion nights, they're rolling way harder than they would in a normal competition class or a curriculum class or something like that. They are making you earn it. They're going to make you pay if you make a mistake. And so that's basically what we did. And I don't know, we did that for about an hour or so, an hour and a half or so with little breaks in between. And then we got to the end, but, but the really cool thing was, is, you know, I, we did a bunch of rounds in gi and then we did a bunch of rounds in, in no gi. And I got to roll with one of my main training partners, Tyler, a couple of different times. And so, uh, he, I think he tapped me about a dozen times in about five or six minutes. Cause that's just kind of what happens when you go against him. But the cool thing was, is there was kind of this idea that there might be some black belts promoted that night. And that's an incredible thing. If you don't understand, because some people think, you know, oh, I know a buddy. He's like a karate black belt. Well, karate black, you can get your black belt in like three or four years and you don't even know, you need to know how to fight necessarily, but you can still get your black belt or guys that are do Kung Fu or Wing Chun or stuff like that. You get your black belt super fast. But at this event, we had six of our guys get promoted to black belt. Before then, we had two black belts in the gym. We had one guy who basically runs a gym, runs a curriculum, and then another guy that had come from a different lineage, but is now a part of our gym. So we had two that night. There were six guys that got promoted to black belt, but just to give you guys a sense of how incredibly insane that was of those six guys, the one who had been training the least amount of time had trained for 12 years before he got his black belt, 12 years. And the guy who had been training the longest, I I believe he was 19 years 
19 years of training before he got his black belt. You cannot even assume for one second that if you get a legit black belt in jujitsu that you didn't earn it. I mean, there's a handful of guys, you know, think of Mike Fowler or BJ Penn or those guys. Those guys got their black belts in like three or four years, but those guys are like savants. Those guys are geniuses. Those guys, when it comes to jujitsu, it just agreed with them and nobody could, you know, they're like, oh, you got your black belt in three years. You're not any good. Okay. Get on the mat and let's see how, how good you think they are at that point. But it was an incredibly emotional evening for a lot of guys. And you could see it, especially on the, the guys that got promoted to black belt. I mean, because you think about all those hours and all those practices and all those times you coached and were coached and competed and won and lost and all those different things. The time away from family, the time where family was a part of it. And one of our guys in particular, his name Steve, uh, all of his family was there. He had his daughters there, his son and his wife. And whenever they came on the mat afterwards, it was such an, an, an unbelievably beautiful moment watching him be embraced by his family because they know how important jujitsu is to him because jujitsu becomes a lifestyle. And so I was so ecstatic to have been a small part of that because, you know, I got my blue belt. I was in a long line of people and we had maybe half a dozen people get their blue belts and a couple of purples, a couple of brown belts, and then six black belts. And so just being a part of that, it, it just re-infuses the, the level of family that you feel with these people. It feels very, very familial. And um, for those of you that have done jujitsu, been through promotions, been promoted yourselves, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But the thing about it that I found interesting is when you go through a big thing like that, you always look back and, and you wonder what changed, like what changed immediately. So when you think about it, when you received your diploma in high school, what did you feel like? What, what did change in college? What did that feel like if you, you know, uh, got accepted to, to be on the police force or, or something like that, or you were promoted in the military, you know, what changed? And, and that's what I, the feeling I was struck with whenever I was driving home is, okay, now that I've got this blue belt, what has changed about myself? And what I realized is that nothing had changed. When that blue belt was put around my waist, nothing changed. I mean, to be honest, I still suck at jujitsu. I have a lot of problems that, that I can't deal with in jujitsu and that I haven't learned how to do. I'm still, you know, a, a, like a newly born giraffe trying to like figure out how to walk. I still have a long way to go. And so the blue belt wasn't a symbol of anything other than, hey, you stuck it out. You went through the practices. You learned what you needed to learn and you've made it to this step. But what I can tell you is I do have a new goal. Because when you're a white belt, you don't really know about anything. Again, go back to episode five of this podcast. But my first tournament, I didn't know what my goal should have been. Should my goal be to get one takedown? Should my goal be to you know win one match? Should it be to win gold medal or just get a medal? Like you don't really know what to do. But the longer you train, you kind of get an idea of like, okay, this tournament, you know, the idea is I want to go double gold or I want to make sure that you know I uh, don't get taken down or just whatever the thing might be. You can create the goals because you have more knowledge. But my new goal now is to not get the blue belt blues. So for those of you who understand jujitsu, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But for those of you that don't, the blue belt blues is one of those things. And it's kind of a funny thing in the jujitsu community. You have guys that train for a year or two, they get their blue belt. And then you like, don't see, you don't see him anymore. Like they just disappeared. It's like, ah, where'd Jim go? Ah, we have no idea where Jim's been, but he got his blue belt. And I guess that was good enough because you get your blue belt and it shows that, you know, something, you know, a little something about jujitsu. Now you don't know very much, but you know something, right? And so sometimes with blue belt, you get to this point where you feel like, okay, you're starting to plateau. Purple belt seems like it's so far off in the distance that it's so hard to even, even like theorize how you would even get there. And I think another part of it is within the transition from white belt to black belt, the, the longest transition period, I believe is blue belt. That's a general gist I get from, from looking around because, you know, you're a white belt for a year or two of consistent training. And then, you know, at purple belt and brown belt, you're maybe a purple belt or brown belt for a few years. And then you get your black belt, um, a few years each on, on brown belt and purple belt. But with blue belt, we, I've seen guys that have been blue belts for five or six years. And these guys, they may train somewhat consistently. Maybe they take some time off in between, but it's the longest runway until you get that next promotion. Because once you get a purple belt, it just kind of makes sense for you to keep going. Because when you get your purple belt, it's not exactly the midway point. It's a little bit over the midway point. And so that's a new goal for me. It's just to make sure that I don't look at that blue belt as anything different. You know, the belt's a little stiff. It doesn't fall as right as I'm and cleaned as much. But that's the thing is that is just a new belt color. 
So it doesn't, it shouldn't communicate anything to anybody else other than the fact that I haven't been training for five minutes. I've been training for a couple of years. That's what it should communicate. But you don't want to get caught up in what do colors mean? Like what do the belt colors mean? And what should that communicate about you? Because here's the deal. I could go into my next tournament. I have less than two years of training under my belt and I could be competing against a blue belt that's been training for six or seven years. Probably not terribly likely, but that's absolutely the case. Certainly four or five years. And so, and if they're just a better athlete and a better wrestler to begin with, I, it may be a long day for me, right? But that I just wanted to kind of give you guys an idea of what that night was like. I wanted to kind of bring it to you a little bit because there was a lot of sweat. There was a lot of, of struggling. And then there was a lot of smiles. There were some tears. Guys had a really, really good time. My wife is a professional photographer. She did a fantastic job of capturing the evening. And, and in all of its <laughs> terribleness, I mean, when I look at most of my pictures, I don't look great in most of my pictures because I'm having, you know, large gorillas basically uh, keeping me on the ground and doing whatever they want to to me. But it was just an incredible, incredible night. But I wanted to go ahead and talk a little bit about um, some of the lessons that I learned. I alluded to this a little bit earlier. And again, if you go back to episode five of this podcast, and again, for those of you who have been with this podcast from the beginning, I have to give you guys a, a special thank you because for the first dozen or so episodes, I'm, I'm kind of digress. I'll digress back here in just a second. But for the first dozen or so episodes, I didn't really know how the microphone and the little like screen thing that I'm like trying to, you know, figure out. I had no idea how that stuff worked. And so if you endured those first dozen or so episodes, my face was like right on top of the microphone. And so you could hear this like every time that I, I said something with a P word in it, it had a huge pop and I couldn't talk very loud because it would, you know, blow out the speakers or whatever. So I didn't really figure out, I didn't need to hover right on top of this microphone until, you know, 12, 13 episodes in. So again, if you listen to episode five of this podcast, understand that there's going to be some popping. And if you're listening to it in your car, it might be a little bit annoying, but I'll digress back to here. But I mentioned three lessons up to that point, because that episode was after I'd done six months of jujitsu. So this is six months of gi jujitsu at the Forge in Edmond. And there were three big lessons that I pulled out. The first lesson was humility right? Because jujitsu is the ultimate ego killer. And I, I won't go into long explanations of these because I've already done that, but jujitsu is all about getting humble. It doesn't matter how good of an athlete you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been training. If someone's been training longer and if they understand things more, you're going to be in trouble. And you basically see humility in others. You see guys that are really, really, really good that can absolutely destroy you. They'll get in a position, they'll get the, uh, the, the lock of some kind, and then they'll just let it go because they know they had you. And there's no reason for them to crank on something because you may not know when you need to tap. So that was the first lesson is humility. The second lesson is just the power of jujitsu. The ability to control others is, is so unbelievable. And when you learn different things in jujitsu, it's absolutely incredible because you understand how quickly with just a little bit of training that you can control someone entirely that is not trained. Like if, if they're, you know, generally the same size as you, but they don't know how to do jujitsu, you can absolutely take them down and hold them there until help comes. It absolutely happens that way. But also it's so easy to hurt people. You, I mean, you, you get a drunk guy at a bar and he, he wants to get in a fight and you take him down. If you mount him and, and you want to choke him or take his back and choke him or take his arm or something like that, if you mean him ill will, he cannot stop you. Like you're breaking the arm, you're breaking the shoulder, you're breaking, you know, uh, the foot or the ankle or the knee, like you're putting them out cold. It's just, it's just the nature of it. But also you have to learn how to control yourself, which I wasn't always good at. And I'll get a little, get more into that here in just a little bit. But yeah, that was the second lesson I had learned. It's just the power of jujitsu. And at that six month mark, the third lesson I learned was jujitsu, Brazilian jujitsu can be for everyone. I mean, I hear about this all the time. It's like, oh man, I don't do all that MMA stuff. Like, I don't, I don't want to necessarily do all that. But the thing is, is jujitsu is for all body types and all athletic abilities. I mean, you can't look at a guy like Gordon Ryan and compare him to a guy like, you know, Matt Serra. Like Matt Serra is basically a bowling ball with arms and legs, but he's an absolutely incredible jujitsu player. So there's not like a specific type. There's not like a specific body type, right? And, you know, basically it's just, do you have the willingness to embrace the suckiness and the pain of learning something that maybe doesn't come naturally to you, right? And again, I, I talked about that quote, that black belts are just white belts that never quit. That's absolutely true. And for most people, they don't ever get to that point because they may take a, a few classes or go see some things here or there. It gets a little bit too hard. They're a little bit too sore and then they never come back right? It's way different than the blue belt blues, just people being pussies. And they're, they, they come in for a month and they're like, ah, oh, this is too hard. I want to do something else. I'm gonna go back and golf or whatever the thing might be. So those are the lessons again, that I learned at that six month mark is humility, the power of jujitsu and that jujitsu can be for everyone. But I've learned a lot of lessons since then. 
And I want to frame these in a way that you guys understand um, whether you do jujitsu or not, this is going to be helpful for you to kind of learn them in the different ways that, that I'm talking about them. So since the last episode, since episode five, it's been about another year's worth of training. And so I'm basically going to give it to you via story time. Okay. So um, it, I'm going to tell you a bunch of different stories. And then at the end of the, each one of these stories, we're going to be able to give you basically a lesson, the big lesson that you should take away. So the first story is, I'll just call it the mental quitter, the mental quitter. So this is a story of my third tournament ever. Okay. So going into this tournament, the goal that I wanted was to win double gold. And for those of you that don't realize, whenever you um, apply or, or register for a tournament, you can register for gi, no gi. You can do your weight division, and that you, you know you have your weight division, your age, and your belt level. And then you can do another division called absolute. And absolute, there is no weight restrictions. The only restrictions are they put people that are similar belts or the same belt together and also the same age bracket. Because typically age, you know, you'll go from, you know, 18 to 29 and then 30 to 39, 40 to 49, so on. So I wanted to get double gold. I wanted to compete in the gi. I wanted to win my weight division. And then I wanted to win the absolute division. Okay. So um, I had never done that before. But the thing about this tournament is about two weeks before the tournament, I got a pretty serious neck injury, right? So just something just kind of weird in practice. It just kind of popped. Everything got, got out of alignment. But for the two weeks leading up to this tournament, I couldn't do anything. Like I could not, I certainly couldn't do jujitsu. Uh, I couldn't lift weights. I couldn't run because everything I did severely affected my neck. And so leading up to it, I was needing to cut weight a little bit. Because this tournament, uh, the the weight classes were a little bit differently, uh, done a little bit differently. So with most of them, I could be at least 191 pounds and still be able to compete. And I, I hover at like 191, 192. So that wasn't going to be a big deal. But for this tournament, I needed to weigh below 185, which five pounds is not a big deal. But when you can't work out and you still need to be able to get enough calories in to where you can operate... It was just one of those tough deals. Like, how am I going to lose this weight? Because I wasn't just going to, I mean, I'd already spent the money. You can't get your money back. I was going to compete in this tournament no matter what. So this was kind of like the beginning of summer. And so what I would do is I would literally put on, you know, shorts and sweatpants and long socks and, you know, sweatshirts and pull the hoods up and put on a beanie. And I would just basically walk my neighborhood and try to walk as fast as I could without affecting my neck, you know, take my dog for a little bit. I mean, the people in the neighborhood were like, what is wrong with this guy? I mean, they, I had several people stop to ask me what in the world I was doing, but I was just basically trying to keep my weight down. But long story short, I was able to get to the tournament. I was able to weigh in. I weighed in under my weight and it was, it worked out just fine. But the thing about it was, is, is it wasn't the easiest tournament. Um, the tournament before that, uh, I just competed in my weight division and I submitted all three of my opponents in, you know, each one of them in less than two or three minutes. I, I did really, really well in that tournament, but let's talk about just my weight bracket first. So in my weight bracket, it was a small bracket. So I only had two matches in order to win, but the first guy I went up against, the thing that was funny about him is when I walked into the tournament room, I saw this guy warming up and I literally had this thought in the back of my head. I was like, man, that guy is jacked. I'm so glad I'm not in his weight division. And then they call his name and then call my name. And I was like, oh, crap. How is this mongoloid dude less than 185 pounds? He was like former army ranger jacked, like super, super jacked. And so I was like, all right, this is going to be interesting. But I wasn't going to change my game plan. My game plan is to always get the takedown. And typically I try to get the takedown early. I don't want to let them get settled in and get moving around and get a good feel for my movement. I want to try to get the takedown immediately. So with this first guy, I tried this takedown that up to that point had never been stopped in a tournament. It was just an outside single to where, you know, basically if I don't get it, my neck's not in any type of trouble or anything like that. And so I go out there to get it and he stuffs it and he stuffed it hard. And I was like, Okay, uh, it didn't really feel like a wrestler, though. Didn't really feel like he had the hips to be a wrestler, but, you know, whatever. So I kind of get out and I reset, but I didn't want to reset too long. I shoot again. Stuffs me again for a second time. I was like, okay, uh, I didn't really think about any <laughs> any other takedowns that I was going to be doing because these have just worked for me over and over. But then the third time, I try the same takedown. I hit a trip on him, but then I end up in a guillotine. Problem right? This is a big, strong mongoloid guy that got me in a guillotine and he had his legs wrapped around me. So it was a problem for your boy. So it was just a problem at that moment. So I'm starting to go out. This guy is squeezing. I can't really get his hands apart. And so I could feel myself starting to go unconscious. I was very, very close to tapping. And for whatever inexplicable reason, he just kind of lets up a little bit. 
he he just kind of like just for a second, just doesn't start squeezing as hard. I was able to get my head out. And so long story short, we had, we had a couple of different, oh, one thing I didn't mention about this tournament, it was a submission only tournament. So you couldn't win via points. There was just basically this big time limit and you had to try to submit your opponent in that time period. So getting position wasn't really a great idea. Um, and so as I'm going through, I end up getting mounted on this guy, but I knew being mounted on him, he was, he was really, really strong. So I probably wasn't going to stay there for very long. I was about to put in what's called an Ezekiel choke. I was sneaking my, I basically am choking him with my shirt sleeve, um, my jacket sleeve. And I'm sneaking my, uh, my arm <laughs> underneath his head. And my coach who was there with me that day, he goes, Ezekiel, Ezekiel, like, like he was telling me to do it. But as soon as he said it out loud, that then my opponent realized that that's what I was trying to do. So I was like, coach, come on. What the heck? Why'd you tell him what I was trying to do? But you know, he made up for it uh, literally about five seconds later, because like I said, this guy was really strong. He pushes me off a mount and then, um, he, he left his arm exposed though, but I didn't see it. And so my coach really calmly goes arm bar. And I was like, oh yeah. So I grab his arm, throw my leg over and I kind of did a belly down arm bar. He flipped over right on top and then tap pretty quick. So I, I ended up taking out this really, really, really tough opponent in the first round. And the championship match isn't nearly as exciting as that one was. Uh, it was against a, a younger kid. He had kind of been bumped up into our bracket, uh, wasn't you know physically strong or anything like that. So I was able to take him down pretty easily, take his back. And then when he scrambled out, I got an arm bar on him as well. So I had won my division. But again, winning your division isn't nearly as difficult as winning the absolute division because like I've talked about before and like you may already know, in the absolute division, you might be the smallest guy in there. And again, I weighed in about 184 pounds that day. And you know every guy I went against was a lot bigger than that. So I had about a... 15 minute break and then I went over to do the uh, and this is kind of where we get into the part of the story why I call it the mental quitter so I get over to the absolute division I go against the first guy he's probably 20 pounds heavier than me but uh, take him down uh, get mounted and I get him in a, a uh, Americana and tap him out pretty quick and then it's a championship match again this one I only had to win two matches to win the absolute as well the guy going against me in the championship match was 270 pounds 270. Remember, I weighed in at 185, 184, actually, right? I had a one pound allowance. Like I'd gotten under the 185 limit. And so I go up to my coach and I'm like, um, what do I do with this? He is huge. And, you know, he wasn't in like great shape, but when you're that size, you can just get away with doing some things pretty terrible, right? Um, and he literally goes, all right, Kyle, you have really, you're in really good shape. You have good cardio. Just move a lot. Like he's just going to get tired from trying to like chase you down. What I didn't have the heart to tell my coach though, is those two weeks where I couldn't really work out. My gas tank was like blown. Like I didn't have my normal gas tank. Like I normally have a really, really good gas tank. But if you guys ever understand about cardio, cardio can leave you super fast, right? It, it takes a long time to lose your, your strength, but you can lose your cardio super quick. So I was like, okay, all right. I just kind of like nodded like, yeah, that was going to be the plan. And so I started moving around, match starts, and, um, you know, I'm trying to get grips. But here's the problem. I tried to do a face plant takedown for a guy. I forgot to uh, block his outside leg. And so what I ended up doing is that I ended up pulling somebody who weighs approximately the same uh, poundage as the moon. I pulled him right on top of me and right into side control. So for those guys who don't know it, he's past both of my legs. I don't have my legs wrapped around him. He is completely in side control, laying on me with all of his frame. And this is the point. This is kind of the big part of the story. In that exact moment where I pulled him, I made a huge mistake, pulled him into side control. I thought to myself, this match is over. I've lost. And it was that split second where I quit in my head. I quit. Match is over. No, no reason to keep flopping around. No reason trying to push him off me. This is it. This is a 270 pound man who's got bad intentions and he's in my side control and I'm the one that got him here. But one of my teammates actually saved the day for me. And my teammate doesn't really know this. I never told this to him. But one of my teammates named Jason, he had been watching all the matches that day. He wasn't just watching my matches. He was watching all these people's matches. He had seen this guy compete in all his matches and he had been undefeated that day and when he got into side control all he wanted to do was this thing called a bread cutter choke and i'm, I'm not going to get into the to the intricacies of the choke but essentially he's just basically choking you with your own your own jacket in his forearm right and this was just how he was finishing people and people were tapping apparently really quickly so i remembered that i thought to myself this match is over i might as well just quit 
But then I felt this guy reach across from my outside lapel. And I'm like, oh, he's trying to get the bread cutter choke. I remembered what my buddy Jason had said. And immediately in that instant, it was like I had that ray of hope that I knew what this guy was doing and I could do something to thwart his attack. Because I didn't know if this guy was any good. I didn't know if he was just going to move from the bread cutter. I block it and then he just moves to something else, tries to go to neon belly mount. Like I had no idea, but I blocked the bread cutter immediately. And it was almost as if this guy wasn't sure what to do because all day long, that's all he had been doing to people. Right. And so I blocked that and I'm able to kind of work my hips out a little bit. And after maybe about 30 seconds or so I get out. Right. So we're both standing and he is exhausted. I don't know if this was just an amalgamation of, of all the things he had, he had uh, done that day or, or kind of what had gone on that match, but he is taking big, deep breaths. And so my coach is yelling at me. He's like, shoot, shoot, go, go now, go now. But again, remember, I don't have a gas tank either. So I'm gassed and I'm like kind of going through the emotion of, oh crap. Okay. I thought it was over. I thought it was over, but man, I blocked that bread cutter. Thanks, Jason. But now I'm up. Uh, uh, what do I do now? <laughs> and so I shot on this guy. And I shot on him and basically drove him halfway onto another mat. I thought the referee was going to stop the match because we were so far off the mat. The referee didn't stop it. So I stopped driving, which was my fault. And then the guy just lands on top of me. I was like, okay, now I'm stuck again, but I was able to make my way out. But what ended up happening at the end of this match is I was able to get in a position where I was, I was mounted on him. And then I was doing the Ezekiel choke. And my coach didn't yell out that I was doing the Ezekiel choke this time. But the thing was, is I didn't have the grip correct. So basically I was trying to choke the guy, but I hadn't sunk it in yet. But this guy being as big as he was, he just thought, okay, I'm just going to turn myself over because I was a little bit high. My hips weren't as heavy. And so what happened was, is he flips me over, but in doing so, he actually sunk in the choke for me. So I had a little bit of a gap between my wrists And then as soon as he flipped me over, my wrist kind of connected in and boom, I had him in the Ezekiel choke and I just squeezed and pulled as hard as I could. He hesitated for a second and then he taps and I was so elated and so excited. I had one double gold. No, it wasn't the ADCCs or, you know, IBJJF, you know, world championships or anything like that, but it was a big deal. I had won the first double gold. But again, the big thing I remember from that tournament was I quit. I mentally quit. But here's the lesson. Again, I told you in the, in the rest of these stories aren't going to be nearly as long as this one, but I wanted to get the, the longest one out of the way at the beginning. Here's the lesson from this one. Mental resilience can be fostered while in the fight. So I was literally in the middle of this fight or this match, whatever you want to say. And I had quit. I, I had let my mental resilience uh, or let my mental strength wane, right? Because remember, we talk about the difference between strength and resilience. Strength is, you know, you can build it, build it up, but it can wane from time to time. But resilience that's just your ability to bounce back. You can do that at any point. But for most of you guys that are in the middle of something right now, whether it's relational, whether it's physical, whether it's, uh, you know, something going on with the kids, whatever the thing might be, you can cultivate mental resilience while in the middle of that fight. So I don't want to get too, you know, uh, too otherworldly and, you know, existential and all that kind of stuff. But that's the thing. That was the big lesson I want to get through to you guys on the mental quitter is I quit and then bounce back almost in the same second. Right. And you can do the same. You kind of have that inner voice that's telling you what you need to do. And that's usually telling you to quit. You don't have to do that. Okay. So that's one of the lessons I wanted to get through to you guys. So that was story number one. Now, story number two, and like I said, there's four more stories, but these are going to be much, much shorter. So let's go rapid fire. Story number two is called Tyler takes Kyle to school. Okay. So here's the thing. Every Thursday night, we have competition class. That's typically when most of the killers come out because these are the people that like to compete and are competing the most often. So we get a lot of rounds in. It's typically a really, really difficult class. And again, uh, this probably happened maybe uh, five, six months ago. I had an especially bad class, right? I made a bunch of mistakes. Um, There was a bunch of positions that I thought I could get into that I couldn't get into. I got submitted a lot. I got tweaked in a couple of different ways that, you know, it hurt a little bit. And I was just like, man, it was one of those bad classes. Okay. So I go back to the locker room afterwards and I'm getting changed. And my main uh, training partner and my main coach is a guy named Tyler. And so I was just, you know, Tyler's like, you know, how was class? You know, how'd you feel? And I was like, man, I just feel like I'm getting worse. I feel like I'm getting worse at jujitsu. Like, and that's exact. that's all I could think of at that moment is not like, oh, I've plateaued because I'm so good. No, it's like, man, I feel like I'm going backwards. Like I'm training and training and training, but I feel like I'm getting worse. And Tyler isn't one to be very, uh, very poetic with his words, right? He, he's, he's a little bit introverted. 
And he just, he's not one to just basically just talk and talk and talk and yak. That's just not his style. But he said something that was so profound to me. And I've remembered it to this moment. And I was like, okay, all right. I need to just shut up and keep training. But this is what he said. He asked me a question. He goes, Kyle, what would you do if you competed against Kyle from six months ago? And I immediately knew what he meant. And I was just like, oh man, I would kill that guy. And he was like, all right, then shut up. Keep training. I was like, oh, okay. All right. That makes perfect sense. And so the lesson here from Tyler takes Kyle to school is compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's rule number four from Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life. Compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. Again, if you let your ego get involved with jujitsu, it could end up taking you down more than it'll take anybody else down. Because that was the thing is I was basically thinking to myself, man, I'm getting beat by all my, my, my teammates. And again, it was, it was ridiculous because all these teammates had been training much longer than I had. Some of them were just, you know, clearly better athletes than I was. I was just being hard on myself. But Tyler was just like, dude, like just what compare yourself to who you were. You are better at jujitsu today than you even were a week ago. Shut up. So thought that was a really, really good lesson. So shout out to Tyler Murray. Thank you so much for that. All right. Story number three, this one's called my first bull in the ring. Okay, so if you don't know what bull in the ring is, and I know some people call it a gauntlet, some people call it this or that, but um, bull in the ring is basically where you have one person in the middle, and then every minute or every two minutes or so, you bring a new fresh guy in, and that person that person basically tries to survive grappling against the entirety of the class. So um, before my first tournament, there's a group of guys that I've talked about a lot on here that get together on Sunday night. It's not an official class with the Forge or any particular gym that we've trained at. But they wanted to prepare me for my first tournament. So this is a Sunday before my first tournament. And so they're like, all right, Kyle, you're going to be bull in the ring. And so uh, let's just say the first bull in the ring experience I had was not good. And it was completely because of me. So again, you're not supposed to do well in bull in the ring. The whole point is to put you at a disadvantage every single time they bring a fresh person out. And here's the thing is if someone has your back and the minute timer is up, that next person just runs in and hops on your back. Like the other person hops off and they hop on. So it's not like a reset type of thing when, whenever we do it. But let's just say I got submitted by a guy who had never submitted me before that I thought I was much, much better than. And I just flip out. I'm like punching the mat and like screaming and I'm cussing. I'm acting like an idiot. And I get all the way to the end, right? I went all the way through the thing and then I'm done and I'm over in the corner and I'm pouting and I'm so mad at myself and I should have done better. Blah, 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 blah. And you would think at this point, you know, someone came over and you said, Hey Kyle, you know, you shouldn't act that way. Or, you know, it's going to be okay. You did a good job. They didn't do that. Right. They let me sulk and they let me go over there and be an idiot and all those different things. But I've thought about that night a lot. Right. It's like, and I did have one guy reach out to me later. He's like, man, you're better than that. Why'd you do that? And it wasn't like you're better at jujitsu than that. He's like, you're just a better dude than that. Like, why'd you freak out? And so I just remember thinking how, how stupid that was, how immature that was and how just egocentric that was that I flipped out again, the whole point is survival. And all these people are your friends. These are your teammates. And I I just acted like a fool. Right. But since that time, I've been bull in the ring in a couple of different instances, right? You know, usually when someone's, you know, about to have their first kid or it's their birthday or maybe they're leaving town for a long time, you'll be bull in the ring. That's just kind of how it goes. You know, as I'm recording this later on this evening, I've got a bull in the ring to look forward to for another buddy because it was his birthday. Uh, Conveniently, he wasn't uh, in attendance uh, the week of his birthday, but he thought we forget. We did not forget. So he's going to get his tonight. But in my subsequent bull in the ring experiences, I've thought to myself, okay, control yourself, control your emotions, make it through and and try to be offensive with every single person. Cause it can be really easy when you get tired to just try to be defensive and just fight hands. But I wanted to be offensive with every single person. And so long story short on that, the lesson that I've learned is that your ego can and will ruin you if you allow it to. And, and guys, this is a lesson for all of life, right? This certainly isn't just a lesson for, you know, what I'm talking about right now. This is a lesson for your entire life because ego is what drove the freak out when I did my first bull in the ring about six months into training jujitsu. It was, it was absurd. I keep thinking back on that moment and I'm like, man, that is so, so embarrassing. And it's like, that wasn't that long ago. And I would like to say that's going to be my last freak out uh, in terms of jujitsu, but I just, I know myself a little bit better than that. I, ho- I hope that's the case, but it's just kind of one of those de- one of those things where the lesson is that you got to get your ego in check and jujitsu is a great way to do that. All right, guys, story number four, I'm going to call it uh, my poor face. <laughs> and basically the thing is, is I was training on a Sunday afternoon. I was doing this face plant takedown and it was something I had kind of been working on and I'm training with somebody. 
and let's just say uh, in the middle of the takedown, something went wrong and I broke my nose, <laughs> like bad. Uh, my nose kind of looked like a question mark. Um, it was it was just a bad, bad deal. The, the buddy of mine that I was training with, he felt so horrible because it was his elbow that went into my nose that ended up breaking my nose. And I, I tried to explain it to him. I was like, buddy, that could have been anybody. You didn't do anything. I literally dragged your arm into my face during this takedown and broke my nose using your arm. But it was just, it was a tough deal, right? You know, I, I come home and you know, my wife's like, Oh crap. Like, what are we going to do? And you know, we didn't want to spend all this money going to the doctor and there, you know, you can't really do much for a broken nose. So there's no reason to go to the emergency room. But my big thing is I just wanted to get it reset and I didn't want it to be like this ordeal, right? I didn't want to be put out, be put under anesthesia, have someone drive me home, miss a half a day's worth of appointments or whatever the thing might be. And I also didn't want to be, you know, shuffled around to three or four different offices so that they could all get paid. This person looks at it and goes, yeah, it's definitely broken. That'll be a billion dollars. Next person's like, ah, oh, let's take an x-ray. Yep. Definitely broken. That'll be $2 billion. Like I didn't want to mess with all that. And so I actually did get my uh, nose reset, but I was able to find an ENT, an ear, nose and throat doctor here in Oklahoma city that reset it without anesthesia, <laughs> which if you watch the movies, it's like the easiest process ever, right? The guy just grabs it and says, all right, just, you know, bear down. And then you just crack it over and you're done. That's not exactly how it goes, right? Without getting into the long drawn out story, it took this doctor about five minutes of cranking on my nose. Again, no anesthesia, cranking on it, cranking on it and pushing it. Grown man with two thumbs on one side of your nose, pushing as hard as he can. But after about five minutes of pushing, it went right back down into the center. It was horrible. I don't suggest that anybody do that. Uh, if I break my nose again, I'm probably not going to do it that way again. But anyway, so the lesson here, you might be thinking to yourself, why in the world is he talking about this? This is the lesson. And here's the thing, guys. It is a very, very important lesson. And it's don't use your teammates elbows to break your face. That's really the lesson. Don't do it. The thing is, a broken nose is not a common injury in jujitsu, but somehow Yours truly found a way to break his face using his teammate's arm. Don't do it. Highly suggest that you not do that. And the last lesson here is something, and I think this is a really uh, unique title of this story, and I, I made it up myself. It's called Band of Brothers, right? No one's ever heard that before, right? Anyway, Band of Brothers. It's all I can think of. I know you guys have heard of Band of Brothers before, but Band of Brothers, this isn't as much of a story as it is a description of reality. There's a brotherhood within jujitsu. And when you train with people for any length of time, and you guys know this, if you used to be athletes, high school or collegiate, if you used to be in the military, police force, you know, uh, firehouse, anything like that, you get that brotherhood just by being around people and you see what people are made of when they're put into difficult situations that require them to really dig down and dig deep. And I've talked about this before, the group of guys that get together on Sunday nights where we're reading books and talking to one another. I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but if you haven't heard that episode, the last quarter of last year, that would be 2018, out of the dozen to 15 or so guys that, that come to that group, about four of them were having major issues with their marriages, like huge, huge issues. You know, sometimes it was, you know, the guy, you know, was drinking too much or, or, uh, the, the girl cheated on, on the guy or the guy cheated on the girl, like whatever the thing was just all kinds of crazy, crazy issues that were all over the place. And these guys didn't have anyone else to talk to about it. There was no one at work they could talk to. Their families wouldn't understand. And they didn't necessarily want to talk to their families because it would make, you know, their spouse look really, really bad. But the thing about it is, guys, is they could come talk to us. Because they knew every Sunday at 7, we were going to be there. And if they had something and they wanted to bring it up, they could. They could bring it up to us. And we'd be there to listen to them. And if they needed us to come over and, and intercede in anything, they knew we'd be there immediately, right? But it's only because we were able to it was after all this training had happened. It's what I talk about all the time. You have all these ministries, especially these so-called men's ministries that all they want to do is get men in circles and have them talk to one another. But the thing is, is they haven't accomplished anything yet. They haven't gone to battle as it were. This isn't, you know, this isn't war, but it's the closest thing you may maybe have in your suburban lifestyle to war, to a fight of any kind. And so because of those things, because we've learned a lot about each other and we've competed with one another and we've seen each other get hurt and get frustrated and pop back and come back the next day or the next week or whatever the thing might be, it creates this deep, deep brotherhood within people. And so the lesson here, guys, is your teammates will become your brothers and treat them accordingly. Because whether this is my little Sunday night crew or any of the other Forge classes, those are my brothers, man. Like, absolutely. 
And it becomes one of those things where you start to evaluate some of the friendships in your life and you think to yourself, man, there's no way I could leave the gym. You know, if budgets get tight or if timing gets tight or your schedule gets tight, whatever the thing might be, you try to find a way to still make it to jujitsu. And this kind of takes me back to the beginning when I was talking about the night where all these guys got promoted. That's why you're seeing all this emotion on some of these guys' faces because of all the sacrifice and, and all of the excitement. And then you have a room full of people that are genuinely, genuinely happy for you. They, they couldn't be happier for you. And so guys, those, those are the five stories that I wanted to kind of bring out there to you. And again, I'll run down those lessons just real quick again, just so you know. Again, the first lesson, uh, lesson is uh, mental resilience can be fostered while in the fight. The second lesson is compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. The third lesson is your ego can and will ruin you. The fourth lesson is don't use your teammates' elbows to break your face. And then the last lesson is your teammates will become your brothers. Treat them accordingly. So uh, real quick here, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit more about, um, you know, even just me personally, my personal jiu-jitsu game, because I know a lot of you guys out there that maybe have done sports before, you will kind of look at yourself and you'll look at the things that you're good at or not good at. And I just want to kind of take a real quick second to kind of just put this out there to you, if for nothing else, to make myself accountable. So here's some things that I need to get better at in jujitsu. And so guys, if you have any pointers and you know what you're talking about, please shoot them over my way. And then some things that, that I'd, I'd like to continue getting better at because these are things that I'm okay at. And I'll probably start with those. So here are the three things that I need to make even better about my jujitsu game. So these are things that I would say I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at now, but I want to get really, really good at. And the first thing is I want to feel even heavier in top position. And so one thing I've been told several times and been complimented on is I have a very uh, heavy top pressure feel in a top game, but there are still certain players and there's certain guys that I compete against where I don't feel as heavy. And so I want to get to where I can feel much heavier on top. The second is keep getting the takedown. So I would not consider myself to be a good wrestler. I would feel like I am an adequate wrestler. Uh, I wrestled for a little bit in, in high school, um, but it wasn't my main sport. I mainly played baseball. But the thing about it is, is I, I'm able to get a lot of takedowns. But there are certain people that I really, really struggle getting takedowns on. And so uh, I want to be able to continue to learn different ways to clean up my technique so I can get more of those takedowns. And the last thing is keep that dog hungry. And for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, um, there are some guys in jiu-jitsu that just have that dog in them where you get them in a bad spot and it doesn't matter. You are not getting this. You're not getting the tap. And it's not just because they're being stubborn and they're, they're going to hurt themselves. You're just not going to get the tap. And so I just want to, for myself, I know there's been a lot of times even competing in the room with my teammates where I've been able to get the jump on somebody just because I had a little bit more of an aggressive, aggressive nature to the role, a little bit more uh, of a focus on kind of what I was doing and just refusing to just give it up easily. Right. And so it's just, it's just that kind of that internal dog and that in internal dog can, can hurt you if, if you don't take it seriously and if you don't control yourself. But I do want to do want to make sure I continue to cultivate that. And a lot of that has to do with being a good shape because when you're in good shape, you can push a little bit harder. But now I want to talk about the three things that I really need to fix. So these are three things in my jujitsu game that I've talked to my coaches about, talked to other people about, you know, researched myself. These are just things that I currently really, really, really struggle with. The first thing is being comfortable on my back. So I already told you guys I didn't wrestle for very long, but I wrestled for long enough to where I realized I never want my shoulders on the back or on the mat, because if your shoulders are on the mat, then the match is over in wrestling, right? But in jujitsu, for a lot of guys, you play off your back, right? You're very comfortable there. I'm currently not very comfortable there, right? Um, and that leads really into the second thing is if I need to get better at being comfortable on my back, the second thing I need to get, be dangerous from my back. I need to really get to the point where I'm dangerous off my back. My guard, when I'm on my back, I get passed way too easily. I need to get that fixed up, right? I don't get enough sweeps from bottom position. And, you know, aside from, you know, the occasional triangle, I'm not getting submissions from, from the bottom either. And so those are both connected. But then the last thing is not getting stuck in bottom side control for whatever reason. That has been one of the biggest bugaboos. And on day one, they teach you how to buck yourself out of side control and shrimp out and do all those different things. It is never computed to me. I will get these guys and they'll be in side control and I just cannot move them. And, and, but whenever I get in someone else's side control, they're able to get that bottom knee in and they, they kind of create space and do all those different things. So again, those are the three things I'm working on. So being comfortable on my back, being dangerous from my back, uh, making sure I'm throwing up subs and sweeps and stuff like that. And then also not getting stuck in bottom side control. So guys, this last segment here of the podcast, this is meant for any one of you guys that is not quite yet committed to trying jujitsu. Okay. Because 
if you live in any place that's fairly populated, there's going to be a jujitsu academy there. There just will be, right? So I've been thinking about, you know, this was part of the podcast that took me the longest to prepare, is how am I going to sell this to you guys? Because that's what it feels like. For a lot of guys, I'm having to sell them on it. Like the virtues of, of trying jujitsu and all those things, because maybe they like to golf or, or read or, you know, uh, play pickup basketball once or twice a month or something like that. And I'm not saying those things are bad, but this is just something that creates a little bit of that different feel. So for those of you that are familiar with story brand, so building a story brand, Donald Miller, that type of thing, this is kind of a, a marketing strategy. But the thing about this is there's a there's kind of a cadence and a narrative uh, direction with most stories that you're going to see, most movies, most books, most everything. And so the story brand framework is this. There's a character with a problem that meets a guide who understands their fear and gives them a plan that calls them to action that results in either failure or success. So I pause there, not for dramatic effect, but because those are each one of the different sections, right? And so I want to walk you through why you should do jujitsu. And I'm going to use the story brand framework. So again, it's a character with a problem that meets a guide who understands their fear and gives them a plan that calls them to action that results in either failure or success. So the first thing, let's get into a character. The character is you. That's pretty simple. I'm talking to you, buddy. The guy on the other end of this podcast, I'm talking to you. All right. With a problem. Here's a bunch of different problems. This is not a complete list, but this is a pretty dang good one. Here's the problem. You don't know how to fight. You aren't physically confident. You're physically weak. Your workouts that you're doing right now aren't hard enough. You have nothing to be in shape for, right? Not since you graduated high school or whatever. You have nothing to be in shape for. You don't know how to connect your physicality with your mentality. You are over other physical endeavors. Like you've, you've played enough golf, you've played enough, you know, softball, or you don't have male community. And again, guys, that's not an exhaustive list, but those are the problems. So you, the character, you have a problem. Those are a lot of them there. I'm sure some of those really hit you square between the eyes. So let's go to the next part. You meet a guide who understands your fear. Brazilian jiu-jitsu understands that fear. That is the guide. But if you need it to be less nebulous than that, the guide can be undaunted life. I mean, it could be me, but it's your jujitsu coaches. Those are your guides. Those are the guys that are going to get you over those problems, right? And the next step is, and gives them a plan. The plan is to train jujitsu. It's pretty simple. Like th this is not one of those super, super technical uh, suggestions. The plan is train jujitsu. And the next part that calls them to action. So I'm going to give you three different suggestions. That's going to be a call to action for you. So you can't be like, well, I don't really like that one. I'm giving you three. All right. So the first one is the same one that we echoed on episode five of this podcast, which is a hundred days of jujitsu. Do jujitsu for a hundred days. That's your call to action. And you can, you can take that any way you want. That can be a hundred days that you actually do jujitsu in that day. Or you look at your calendar from today and you mark out a hundred days from now and you train jujitsu as many times as you can during that hundred day period. I don't care. Train three or four times a week for a hundred days or train, you know, a hundred times. That's the first suggestion. The second is the Jocko Willink suggestion. So maybe I've heard of this before, but he said, basically train jujitsu until you can legitimately submit someone that's similar to you. So someone that's similar size, similar skill level, similar athleticism, get to the point where you can control the position and you can define, you can define exactly how you got into that position and that you actually got the submission. Okay. That's the Jocko Willings suggestion. And then we're going to get into the last suggestion, which is the Joe Rogan suggestion, which is a little bit less nuanced, but just as effective. And here's the thing. This is a quote from one of his podcast episodes from way back in the day. It's good for you to get your butt kicked. I changed the word a little bit there, but it's good for you to get your butt kicked. It's good for you to know how easy it is for a man to kick your butt. So those are the calls to action. Either a hundred days of jujitsu train, as long as it takes for you to legitimately submit someone that's very, very similar to you, or just train because it's good for you to know uh, that you can get your butt kicked that easily. And so we go to the next step that results in either failure or success. Cause here's the reality guys. There's not a whole lot of nuance here. If you don't train jujitsu, this is basically what life will look like. And I'm going to go back to those problems I described earlier. You still won't know how to fight. You still won't be physically confident. 
you will still be physically weak, presumably. Your workouts will still be not, they still won't be that hard. You still have nothing to be in shape for. You still don't know how to connect your physicality and your mentality. You still are over all those other physical endeavors and you still don't have male community. If you're not training jujitsu, those are going to be your realities for the most part. But if you do train jujitsu, you will learn and know how to fight. You will develop physical confidence. You will become physically strong. Your other workouts won't be hard enough and you'll be able to define that. I mean, you have something to be in shape for if you train. You discover how to connect your physicality and your mentality. You further yourself from other useless physical endeavors. You're not going to be hitting the driving range as much. And the last thing is you will create male community. I mean, these things are so important, guys, because again, here's the thing. You are the character and you have a problem and you will have to meet a guide that understands that fear who will give you a plan that will call to action that will result in success. And that's what I'm doing here. So this isn't like, oh, this is Kyle's favorite hobby, so uh, you should do it too, so Kyle's, Kyle seems cool, and Jocko talks about it, and Joe talks about it, and oh, I watch it on TV sometimes. No, it's way deeper than all that. And I hope in two podcasts, so about two hours of worth of me talking about this, I hope this makes sense to you guys, because it's so, so important. And you should just see the guys that come in and train with us on Sunday nights that have never wrestled before, never grappled before, never worked out without shoes on before, whatever the thing might be. And you see these light bulbs go off. I had a guy literally come up to me yesterday. This is a guy that is not in very good shape, but this is a guy that's taken a lot of time off of taking care of his body. And it was jujitsu that was the catalyst for him to be healthy so that he doesn't die, right? So he doesn't die early. So he can spend a lot of time with his grandkids, hopefully one day assuming all things are, are equal. But he was even telling me yesterday, he's like, man, Kyle, I was like on YouTube for a long time last night just looking at the jiu-jitsu videos. This guy's been training for like two months. And he's already like getting obsessed with, you know, figuring out moves and it's, it's just in his head all day because he's watching bodies move. He's watching people move. And he's like, oh, well, I, I could have probably isolated that arm there and got him taken down or something like that. It's just how it goes. But again, it's because he's a part of this community. And that may be the biggest thing out of all of this. Yeah, it's, it's good to have physical confidence. It's good to know if a fight pops off near you that you're going to be okay, that you can hold someone down until the cops show up or whatever the thing might be. But the male community part, again, since we, we lack that so much in modernity, I think that might be the biggest, biggest thing. And so, guys, this is not my Hail Mary on jiu-jitsu. This is probably not the last episode that we're just going to exclusively talk about jiu-jitsu, but again, combine episode five of this podcast and this one, and I think it gives you a really good idea of why you should train, okay? So guys, before we let you go, we're going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know by now, we are a men's ministry, and our mission is to cultivate manly resilience, and specifically, we do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So today, we're going to be talking about physical resilience, and so the first one, the first link for you guys is www.google.com. Why am I giving you a link to the most popular website on the earth? Um, Because if you plug your zip code into Google and type in the words jujitsu gyms near me, you can find a jujitsu gym. I'm just telling you. I know there's some guys out here that live in small towns and you might have to travel a little bit for most of you guys that live in cities or suburban areas. There are gyms around you. There are tons of gyms around you. So find a gym and start training at it. The next link I have for you is to Atos Online Academy. So Atos is one of the best, if not the best, jiu-jitsu academies in the world. So this is uh, Andre Galval's school. You might remember him from the story about how he gave me my jiu-jitsu nickname, Viking, from uh, episode five of this podcast. But he has an online academy that is fantastic. I know I know a lot of people that have subscriptions to it. It's kind of a it's one of those things that if you don't have a gym that's really 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 close by, maybe you have to drive an hour hour and a half every week to um, you know go to one class where you're actually rolling with people live. This is one of those things that if you pay the monthly fee, you'll be able to get a really really good idea of some different moves that you should do and some different progressions. Maybe you can get a mat in your garage and, and maybe you and one of your kids can roll around or maybe you and your wife or your neighbor or something like that, but you can learn. You, you can get some friends together and you can learn those different things. And the last video link I have for you is Joe Rogan. Uh, it's a clip of him talking about Marcelo Garcia and it's called Why We Train Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And so it's just really, really good video 
to hear from another person's perspective that's not me uh, about why jujitsu is so important. So I've got those three things there for you guys. So guys, thank you so much. We really appreciate you listening to the podcast. As always, please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. Guys, like I said from the top, if we deserve a five-star review, leave us one. It really, really helps. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the entirety of 2019. So if you want me to come speak on your podcast, come speak to your men's group, to your church, to your team, hit me up, info at undaunted.life. Email is info at undaunted.life life. Our website is www.undaunted.life and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Undaunted Life or facebook.com backslash Undaunted Life. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red that I am seeing in concert on Thursday of this week. So excited for that, for allowing us to use their music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The links to all of this are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.